Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Hi, everyone. Before we start today's episode, a quick reminder to send your questions and comments to unfinished at stitcher.com. We've already got some great voice memos and emails that we'll respond to in a bonus episode. Send yours to unfinished at stitcher.com. And remember, if you want to binge all the episodes of this season right now, subscribe to Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com or the premium tab in your Stitcher app and sign up with the code WITNESS for a free month of premium listening. You'll get to hear all 10 episodes of Unfinished Short Creek right now, plus ad-free listening to all Stitcher and Earwolf shows. And you'll play a key role in supporting the kind of reporting it takes to make this show. That's stitcherpremium.com, promo code WITNESS for a free month of Stitcher Premium. Pushing record. <laughs> okay. Witness Docs from Stitcher. What do I listen to? Yeah. The Ted Radio Hour and those kinds of things. On Being is one of my is one of my favorites. Oh, There's so many. We heard from Shirley Draper last time. Now we're sitting in her dining room in St. George, Utah, listening to her tell us about the podcast she likes. Um, mystery show. I really liked that one. And and I listened to Shit Town. It was like an autopsy of American life. And um, Pod Save America, which tells you a lot about my politics. <laughs> <laughs> um, another one was... Um, After Shirley got married, she wouldn't have been listening to anything produced outside the church. Remember, Warren Jeffs had banned all non-religious books, music, and the internet. That's one reason Shirley, who was a deeply independent thinker, moved away from Short Creek. She was one of many who left or were kicked out of the church. But there were thousands of others who stayed. He's still my prophet. And I love him. He is by far the best person that I have ever met. He just felt like a very wonderful person to be around. After everything we've learned so far, it might be hard to understand why so many people remained loyal to Warren Jeffs. It was for me. But Shirley grew up here, and she knows there's a history that plays a big role in why people stay. And one historical event is particularly important. A government raid on Shore Creek in 1953. This is a recording of Warren giving a lecture at Alta Academy. We come today to the subject of the 1953 raid. And I think that society in general set this thing up for Warren Jeffs to step in and take control. 
We've described to you how the government of the United States persecuted this priesthood through the years. The raid was made to destroy our families. Warren Jeffs was able to say, see there, they want to come in and tear your families apart. Your only safety is with me. You can't trust anyone else. I ask you to go home today and imagine tonight all of you taken away and placed among the Gentiles, not allowed to see your fathers. The story of the 1953 raid is one that everyone here knows. It's part of the community's cultural DNA. But it's also just one chapter in a much longer history of conflict between Mormons and the government. In today's episode, we'll take a trip through that history to learn why so many people stayed in Shore Creek, even as the cost of staying got higher and higher. You look back through history, they've been a maligned and driven people. The Mormons must be exterminated. In my view, it continues today. My grandfather, 84 years old, says, if it's blood you want, take mine. She says, is my baby dead or is my baby alive? And nobody would answer. I'm Sarah Ventry. And I'm Ash Sanders. From Witness Docs and Critical Frequency, this is Unfinished Short Creek. Episode 4, The Kingdom of God or Nothing. Like we said before, if you want to understand what's happening in Short Creek today, you have to go back in time. So we're going to whisk you to the 19th century for just a little bit. But don't worry, we promise we'll come back. Joseph Smith founded Mormonism in 1830. And from the beginning, Mormonism was a truly American religion. Jesus appeared to Joseph in a forest in upstate New York. Joseph preached that Missouri, Missouri, had once been the Garden of Eden. And when Mormons moved west in covered wagons, they were fulfilling the American myth of manifest destiny. But you can't start an American religion without inheriting some truly American problems. The United States was founded on the promise of religious freedom. It's written into the Constitution. But from the beginning, Americans have been wrestling over where and how to draw the line between faith and government. From the moment Joseph Smith founded Mormonism, he and his followers were testing those limits. They wanted to do more than practice their faith. They wanted to build the kingdom of God on earth. They called this city Zion, and it was a full-blown socialist theocracy in the middle of America. And that didn't sit well with a lot of Americans. Growing up in the Mormon church, Every Sunday, I heard people get up and tell what I called the story. And the story went like this. Every time my ancestors would establish Zion in a new state, they were persecuted and chased out. And so they wandered the country, trying to find a new place to build the kingdom of God. Hi, Ashi. Hi, Dad. Hi. Where's Mom? When I was 12, my grandpa chartered a bus and took my whole extended Mormon family on a cross-country trip to learn this history firsthand. This trip's gonna be the best trip we have. 23 cousins, eight aunts and uncles, my grandma and grandpa, and our very overwhelmed driver, Tom. We played cards for hours as the bus followed the routes our great-great-great-grandparents had walked as they were kicked out of city after city. 
This is the path leading up to the sacred grove. We went to New York and sat in the sacred grove, the woods where God first appeared to Joseph Smith in 1820. Guys, guys, this is a reverent spot, please. In Independence, Missouri, we stood at the site where Joseph Smith had planned to build a temple, but there was only a grassy field. Before Mormons could start construction, mobs descended on them. Joseph Smith was tarred and feathered in the street. And when Mormons begged the governor for help, he turned on them too. The Mormons must be treated as enemies and must be exterminated or driven from the state. That's a snippet from an old audio reenactment of the Joseph Smith story. To escape extermination, Mormons fled to Nauvoo, Illinois in 1838, where they began building Zion all over again. Where are we, Dad? We're in Nauvoo. This is the visitor center, the garden. By the time I got there, Nauvoo had become a Mormon reenactment village, filled with bright wooden buildings and little shops where women spun wool and a blacksmith made me a ring out of a nail. At night, my cousins and I ran around chasing fireflies. It was the kind of place you never want to leave. But in 1846, my ancestors had to. Just five years after Mormons settled Nauvoo, the governor threw Joseph Smith in Carthage jail and told the Mormons to get out. Joseph made a prophecy. I am going like a lamb to the slaughter, he said. And he was right. Brother Taylor, please sing a poor wayfaring man of grief again. I love this song. Here's Joseph speaking to his friend and church leader John Taylor in their jail cell. This is from the audio reenactment of that night. Mobs attacked the jail, killing Joseph as he tried to jump out of a window. As we step into this room, I do invite everyone to remove their pad. This east window over here is the one that the prophet had walked over to the time he was shot. And he lunged through the open part of that window down on Standing in that jail, we went quiet. I could hear my relatives weeping. And I cried too. I was just 12, but already I was angry. It wasn't fair. My prophet was an innocent man. He was just trying to live his religion. And the government had done everything in its power to stop him. This is where they would have been killed. And this is the, this is the bullet hole in the, in the door. See that? or one of the bullets would have gone through. Do you think that Mormons see themselves as a persecuted people? Um, that has been a thread, I think, over um, the long history of the Mormon tradition. For the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it was strongest, I think, in the early um, half century of the Church's history. This is Matthew Bowman, a professor of Mormon studies at Claremont University in California. He doesn't do cross-country bus trips, but he knows a lot about Mormon history. 
So, yeah, this is the story that I got growing up of, you know, Mormons on the move being pushed out. But what I didn't get is what I'm going to ask you next, which is, what do you think that non-Mormons found so offensive about Mormons? In Missouri, the Mormons began practicing economic communalism, which meant they did not do a great deal of trading with people around them. They tended to vote in blocks. And the ways in which they imagined how society should be run was to borrow Joseph Smith's terms, theodemocratic, essentially government by righteous councils, right? Government by people called by God. Imagine what Matthew's saying here for a minute. Mormons would move into small frontier towns, establish a religious commune, and then solidify their political power. They'd basically take over and then claim the town for God. And all of this made the people around them very, very suspicious. The people around them felt like these people don't want to be American. And so Mormonism not only seemed weird to them theologically, but also for the implications for how American civilization worked. When Matthew says that Mormonism was weird to people theologically, part of what he's saying is that Mormons were practicing polygamy. But he's also saying that in the early days, The bigger problem was that they challenged so much of what their fellow Americans stood for. Individualism, capitalism, and private property. And so America wanted the Mormons out. Two years after Joseph Smith was killed, Mormons in Nauvoo harnessed their oxen and headed out in search of a new Zion. Out west, in land that was part of Mexico at the time. The Mormons were quite intentionally trying to leave the United States. Once they were in the Salt Lake Valley, outside the reach of U.S. law, Mormons started building Zion again. And this time, it wasn't just about living communally. Now, polygamy was a central part of their faith. In fact, they didn't call it polygamy. They called it plural marriage, because for them, it wasn't just a choice— It was a sacred commandment. Only three years after Mormons settled in the Salt Lake Valley, Utah became a U.S. territory, and the government came after Mormons again. The president was determined to stamp out polygamy for good. And to do that, he had to get rid of Brigham Young, the Mormon prophet and governor. In 1857-58, the president decided to remove Brigham Young as governor, and he sent an army to Utah to ensure that that desire was carried through. And this is a period called the Utah War, in which Brigham Young kind of rallied the militia, and there was something of a standoff before Young agreed to step down. The president of the United States sent in the military to try to stop a small, far-flung group of people from living their faith. He was giving Mormons a choice— follow the law of the land, or face the consequences. And to Brigham Young, the choice was clear. He even had a famous saying about it. If forced to choose between God's law and the law of the land, he would choose, quote, the kingdom of God or nothing. But the United States wasn't giving up. There is a series of laws that Congress passes that legally disincorporate the church, that disinherit polygamous children, that requires Mormons to swear an oath of opposition to polygamy before they're allowed to vote, all sorts of things like that. The U.S. government was targeting Mormonism as a whole, 
sending in the army against the church, passing anti-polygamy laws, but it was also targeting individual Mormon families. Sister Bumby, would you tell us your name, please? Doretta Marie Iverson Bumby. And your birth date? The 1st of December, 1887. This is part of an oral history project recorded in the 1960s. Doretta Bundy grew up in southern Utah, not too far from Short Creek. Now, Sister Bundy, can you tell us uh, some things about your early childhood? My father had uh, three wives and 21 children. And 21 children. Doretta remembers her community taking turns on lookout duty alerting each other whenever federal marshals came over the hill in horse-drawn carriages or black-top buggies. The men, they'd have to hide whenever a black-top buggy came from the north. One man had let the others know the marshals are coming. Sure. So they'd hide. Much of the time. Practicing God's law was coming at a higher and higher price. Families were being split apart, leaders were in hiding, and the federal government was threatening to confiscate Mormon temples. With so much at stake, Mormon leaders literally had to choose between the kingdom of God or being left with nothing. So in 1890, they decided to do the unthinkable. The church put out a manifesto renouncing plural marriage or polygamy, one of the defining parts of their faith. It would take many years and a second manifesto to make the change stick. But the direction was clear. After decades of following God's law, the church was submitting to man's law. Not everyone was on board with the church's new stance, though. And they're the ones who eventually become what we call fundamentalists. These fundamentalists believed in God's law, and God's law included plural marriage. So they refused to give up the practice. And that made the church mad. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they began kind of seeking out polygamists, looking for them and excommunicating them, trying to fully scrub it from the church. Some of those Mormons who were still practicing plural marriage began to form their own community, a new Zion. They started gathering near the Utah-Arizona border. And this is where Short Creek comes into the picture. The first settlers of the community were people that were clinging on to the fundamental aspects of the Latter-day Saint faith. This is Joseph Allred. We've heard from him a little bit in previous episodes. He's the FLDS mayor of Colorado City on the Arizona side of Short Creek. It became somewhat of a haven to be able to live their religion without being molested by the outside world, so to speak and to be able to raise their families in the ways that they felt were honest and full of integrity. And part of the revelations that came through the prophet Joseph Smith included the principle of plural marriage. And in 1890, most of the people of the LDS Church gave up that principle due to pressure from the government of the United States. And so the FLDS faith leans on and lives up to the teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and 
the, the center of our faith isn't particularly plural marriage. The center of our faith is living godly. In the 1930s, these fundamentalists fled to the middle of the desert in the name of religious freedom. They hoped that if they isolated themselves from the rest of the world, they would finally be left alone. But the government had other ideas. Governor Pyle stated that he was going to wipe this community off the map. After the break, the story of the 1953 raid. My dad told me about being dragged out from under the bed by a man in the uniform of the state of Arizona. If it's blood you want, take mine. More than 120 peace officers moved into Short Creek at 4 o'clock this morning. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France. Which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mère and mère somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Here's a picture. This is one of my father's wives. This we called her Aunt Esther. Here she is with two of her little girls. You might recognize this voice from before. This is Alvin Smith Barlow, Sr. Alvin is a very familiar face around town. He's also kind of a walking encyclopedia of Short Creek history. I was born April 15, 1938, in Short Creek, Utah. We visited Alvin at his house, where he used to live with his wives and children. The furniture I have here in the front room is all used furniture or was donated and given to me. This is my church history library. Part of it, I have probably twice that many books. Alvin's house is full of Mormon history and short Greek memorabilia. In the living room are pictures of Mormon prophets from Joseph Smith all the way down to Alvin's own father, John Y. Barlow, the first prophet of Short Creek. The rooms are dotted with dozens of handwritten quotes in frames. Quotes like, We may not know what tomorrow holds, 
but we can trust the one who holds tomorrow. And in his library, Alvin keeps newspaper clippings that document one of the most traumatic events of his life. See, I, I well remember the 53 raid of July 26, 1953. The governor had called the highway patrol under his command as the hit team. And then he sent a detachment of the National Guard as a support team. And we had men out on the road to the west and out on the road to the south. And when they realized that it was for sure, well, they set off a dynamite blast to warn the community. So when those blasts went off, we went to the schoolhouse and rang the bell so the town was awakened. We were all with a group of people in the schoolyard watching the cars come in at four in the morning when the county sheriff and his deputies and the highway patrolmen came and shined their lights through the picket fence and jumped out from behind their doors with rifles. And the sheriff over a loudspeaker said, stand where you are, you're all under arrest. But my grandfather, 84 years old, stepped out of the crowd and greeted one of the officers, says, if it's blood you want, take mine. I'm ready. This is the raid we mentioned at the beginning of the episode. And the man behind the raid was Arizona Governor Howard Pyle. Pyle was obsessed with ending polygamy. As officers came face-to-face with the residents of Short Creek in the early morning light, Governor Pyle went on the radio to declare victory. Before dawn today, the state of Arizona began and now has substantially concluded a momentous police action against insurrection within its own borders. Arizona has mobilized its total police power to protect the lives and future of 263 children. They are the product and the victims of the foulest conspiracy you could possibly imagine. More than 120 peace officers moved into Short Creek at 4 o'clock this morning. They have arrested almost the entire population. At the time, the raid was the largest police action in Arizona state history. 120 armed officers raided a community of less than 500 people. In Pyle's view, the state was doing something very important, rescuing women and children from what he called white slavery. But punishing the fundamentalists for polygamy was only part of the plan. Like the governor of Missouri 100 years earlier, Governor Pyle wanted to completely break up this community. He described their way of life as wicked, ruthless, and lawless. They sent officers through the gates and surrounded the crowd that was around the flagpole in the schoolyard. Some of us had gone into the school and got the flag, and some of the veterans said, put that flag up. So the In the dawn, early dawn now, the flag went up and the people began singing, my country tis of thee. 
when we finished singing that, why, then Brother Johnson said, sing Zion. And so we sang the hymn, O ye mountains high, where the clear blue sky arches over the veils of the free. Anyway, you find it in the hymn book. Law enforcement interrogated families in Short Creek for hours. They searched homes. And then Alvin watched as marshals loaded up his friends and family onto buses. They took 36 men to jail in Kingman, Arizona, and sent dozens of women and children to Phoenix and other communities throughout the state. Soon as the buses left, a couple of the older guys said, fellas, it's up to us. So we fed the animals and made sure they had water and cared for the home, went to the next place. The bread had been put in the oven that morning. You know, the old wood stoves, they were still washing in the washers, dishes all over, just like a Saturday morning. How did it feel to be left in town having to take care of it? It, 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 it felt empty. Everyone we talked to from Short Creek knows the story of the 1953 raid. Grandparents, teenagers, everyone. It's arguably the event that has most shaped this community's attitude toward the government and created a deep fear of the outside world. It comes up a lot. Our mothers went through the 53 raid. Oh, wow. So our mothers were taken on those buses. They gathered their children, gave them 15 minutes to pack for a three-day trip, and said, get on these buses, and she just left everything undone in her home. This is Priscilla Hammond and her sister Marlene. I hadn't planned on talking to them about the raid, but once we started chatting, they shared a story that has stuck with me ever since. Priscilla's mother was actually pregnant during the 53 raid. She was pretty close to delivering. Yeah, three weeks from delivering. And she couldn't even sit down. She was so miserable. That bus ride to Phoenix took 17 hours on the mid-century roads. Tell her the story. She stood up holding on to two bus seats like this because she was having false contractions (gasps) because of all the, you know, just the trauma. But when she got down to Phoenix, they loaded her and her three little girls on a milk truck from the bus station, and they dropped her off at a lady's doorstep and knocked on the door, and the lady looked at her. She says, I ordered a boy. And she had three little girls, and she goes, I don't know what to do. They dropped me off at your doorstep, you know. And she says she took her and her three little girls out back, and she opened the the tool shed door, and she says, well, this is your new home away from home. She says there were cockroaches climbing up and down the walls. Scorpions. Scorpions. And and she says, says, all I could do is sit down. I just started to cry. And the lady said, well, Mrs. Jessup, when you break the law, you have to be punished, don't you? And she left her to her tears and walked out, walked away. Oh, my God. She said two weeks later when her water broke and she was actually going into real labor, she says the lady took her to the hospital and dropped her off on the front steps. She was 26 years old. She said she walked in there, and she went up to the front desk, and the nurses, what's your name? And she told them she was from Short Creek, and she says immediately everybody just hushed, like, holy Toledo, what do we do with this woman, you know? She says the next thing she knew, they took her back in a back room, and she said, woke up, and there she was laying there, and no baby. And she says, where's my baby? And nobody would answer. She says, is my baby a dead, or is my baby alive? And nobody would answer she says, can I see my baby? Nobody, no doctor, no nurse would answer her. 
And finally, after 48 hours, they brought the baby back to her and said, well, here's your little girl. Yes, she's just fine, but we don't want you to feed her because we don't want you to get attached to her, so don't nurse her. Priscilla's mother discovered later why they didn't want her to get attached. The state had been trying to adopt out her baby. Others from the community also said that the authorities were trying to place the children of Short Creek with new families. Families who did not practice polygamy. The state wanted these kids to be in traditional homes. And to do that, they were breaking up the loving, non-traditional homes these kids already had. among towering cliffs in a wild and barely accessible region, the little farming community of Short Hills becomes a national sensation. The scene of a raid by the state of Arizona... Governor Pyle had invited dozens of journalists to document the raid and his liberation of the fundamentalists. Pyle was certain the public would side with him. And among the 86 women taken are many child brides. But when Life magazine ran images of kids being separated from their mothers... The public did not like what they saw. Hardworking and law-abiding in every other way, plural marriage, they claim, is part of their religion. The American public wasn't pro-polygamy, but they did think fundamentalists should have the right to live with their children. And the courts agreed. They ultimately blocked Arizona's attempt to separate these children from their mothers. The raid became known as Pyle's Folly, and politicians steered clear of the polygamy debate for decades to come. The men of Short Creek were eventually released from jail, but it still took some of them and their families a long time to find their way home. Here's Priscilla again. They told them, pack for a three-day trip. My mother didn't move back to Short Creek for 10 years. 10 years. I grew up longing and wishing to be with my siblings. The first wives were allowed to come back in two years. But at two years, our father was all alone. The men were alone here waiting for their wives and children to be released, and they only released the legal wife. The 1953 raid was proof to the people of Short Creek that outsiders would never understand their faith and would always be out to get them. So my dad was 12 years old, I believe, at the time of the raid, the 1953 raid. This is Shirley Draper again. And he told me about being dragged out from under the bed by a man in the uniform of the state of Arizona and how terrifying that was and how he was separated from his father for years, lived in Phoenix in a rest home with complete deprivations and hunger, and then finally being reunited with his parents, you know, and I just, and I heard about it every single day of my life. I heard about how the outside world and the government and law enforcement hate us because of our religion and that they're not to be trusted, and we don't ever report to law enforcement. And so when a Mojave County officer would drive into our town, I would go in the house and close the door. I absolutely learned that in my deepest cells. Why do you think that the states and the federal government have tried so hard to come into this community so many times? I think this is part of the, just the eternal war against right and wrong. That's my belief. Joseph Allred sees the 1953 raid as just one example in a long history of government persecution. You start to see a people come together and live in harmony and 
quite frankly, it, it makes it makes people mad. Why do you think it makes them mad? Well, I, I believe that uh, Satan has his followers and God has his followers. And you, I mean, you can read the history of the LDS, or the LDS people back in in Missouri. Why would people want to drive the Mormons out of Missouri? Why would they want to drive them out of Nauvoo, Illinois? Why would the government send Johnston's army against Brigham Young in the Salt Lake Valley? The people were living in peace and harmony. Why? You look back through history. The Mormon people were a maligned and driven people. And in my view, it continues today. Shirley Draper agrees with Joseph to a point. FLDS have suffered persecution. But she also believes that this distrust of the outside world has created a dangerous mentality. There's a narrative that upholds people's faith, that we will be a tried and chosen people. The world hates us. We are driven. You know, this narrative started back in Nauvoo, and there is, there's a need for them to feel persecuted, and the narrative is really, really important. I, it's heartbreaking, and I understand it. What do you think that sense of persecution gives them in terms of meaning? Well, it validates their religion. You know, when we were derided by the world, to us, it was confirmation that we're God's chosen people, because God's chosen people are always the odd man out, right? Satan has won everybody else, and we're the chosen, and the proof of that is that we're not accepted. And so it really does prove to them the rightness of their position. Shirley says the history of persecution has also created a dangerous sense of isolation. I believe, and I say this with the authority of having been there, that for someone's religion to be against the law creates a lot of fear, and it drives people underground, and I believe that Warren Jeffs capitalized on that. He recognized that in order for him to have complete control of people, he had to capitalize on their fears. And so... Warren Jeffs was able to say, see there, they want to come in and tear your families apart. And remember when they did that in 1953? Remember that? Your only safety is with me. You can't trust anyone else. Those are the kinds of fears that set up this situation. And I think that um, society in general set this thing up for Warren Jeffs to step in and take control. Next time on Unfinished Short Creek. I'd like to announce the FBI top 10 most wanted fugitive, Warren Steed Jeff. Warren Jeffs runs from the law. And Elisa Wall gets her day in court. State calls Elisa Wall, you All right. Ms. Wall, would you please come forward and have a seat here on the witness stand? But Warren's followers take their own view of the evidence. I just want to clarify that you believe that that, that did not happen. 
I'm not going to argue with you about that. I'm not going to discuss that. One note before we end today. We talked a lot about family separations in this episode. We want to acknowledge that obviously the raid on Short Creek wasn't the first time the government would separate families, and it wouldn't be the last. America has a long history of taking children from Native parents, enslaved people, unwed mothers, and immigrants. In 2018, a journalist from the Arizona Republic asked Alvin Barlow about family separations at the U.S.-Mexico border. Alvin knows firsthand what it feels like to have his family taken away, and he sees the parallels. He said, I've thought about it a great deal. We need to do all we can to keep families together. Unfinished Short Creek is a co-production of Witness Docs and Critical Frequency. Our team includes Amy Westervelt, John Delore, Abigail Keel, Sarah Ventry, Peter Clowney, and me, Ash Sanders. Chris Bannon is Stitcher's Chief Content Officer. Our fact checker is Naomi Lachance. Our production assistant in Short Creek is Araya Hammond. Our original score was composed by Allison Layton Brown. Governor Pyle's 1953 radio address was reenacted for us by Paul Dubois. The archival audio of Doretta Bundy is part of the oral history collection at the Dixie State University Library in St. George, Utah. Big thanks to the special collections team for all their help. Today, you heard a few short clips from the Joseph Smith story, released by Covenant Records in 1961. And special thanks this week to Mark Sanders for hauling that heavy VHS camcorder all across the country. Good work, Dad. Did you push the red button? Yeah. Is it on now? Yeah. <laughs> Where's mom? Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA.